You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bloom and Tech. I'm your host, David Bloom, and we regularly sift through the rubble of the collision of media, entertainment, and technology to find a few golden nuggets of wisdom to help us make our way through this complicated time. Got the chance recently to sit down with Larry Fitzgibbon, who is a co-founder and CEO of Tastemade, which is not only located down the street from me a little ways here in Santa Monica, but uh, also has built over the last nine years, a pretty remarkable collection of assets in um, areas such as food, travel, and home and design, creating uh, content on YouTube and on uh, the new streaming channels, uh, both the subscription services, the subscription bundles, as well as the ad-supported services like Tubi and Pluto and Zumo. We talked about all kinds of stuff in this conversation where they're operating with both the platforms and the parts of the world. It's a $60 billion TV advertising market they're hoping to get a piece of in terms of uh, what's going on and the shift from traditional TV and cable to the new streaming universes that we're seeing now. They've got 300 million viewers a month, so I suspect that advertisers are going to be pretty interested in what they might have to say. We also talk about some of their award-winning shows, Struggle Meals, with an Emmy nomination, uh, Roy Choi's Broken Bread, which won a James Beard Award, which is pretty cool, and other operations, other shows that they're doing. Sit back, give us a listen, and uh, we'll be right back. And here's my conversation with Larry Fitzgibbon, the co-founder and CEO of Tastemade. Um, we did this at the back end of February 2021. Tell me just the 50,000 foot level description of what Tastemade is and when you got involved. So uh, I started Tastemade with my two co-founders, Joe Perez and Stephen Kidd. The three of us were part of the founding team of another internet media company called Demand Media, which we started back in 2006. You're neighbor, right? I mean, uh, isn't, uh, what's his name? He was involved with uh, MySpace back in the day. Uh, yeah, Richard Rosenblatt, who's our, our, he was the co-founder and CEO of that company. So yeah, there were six of us who started that company. Uh, again, back in 2006, we, we grew that to be a big business. Took it public on the New York Stock Exchange back in 2011. And yeah, that was a good, that was a big splash. You guys were doing uh, stuff with content, uh, trying to arbitrage things, right? That's really what it boiled down to. It was like search arbitrage, right? Yeah, it was it was very it was of the era of search, and so yeah, we were good at understanding what consumer interest and demand was, and creating content. Hence the name, demand media. And we, you know, we're trying to create original content that would sort of fill the gaps where maybe search engines didn't really have the coverage they were looking for. And so, yeah, that was a company we, we built, took that public on the New York Stock Exchange. Then about a year after that, Joe, Stephen, and I left, sort of started to think about what we wanted to do. We kind of came to kind of two things. One is if you're going to do startups, pick stuff you love. Right. So the notion of coming to work every day, thinking about things like food and travel and home and design, these are all sort of passion categories for us. 
And then the second was, we just saw media was changing, right? The, the landscape was really changing and we, we kind of sensed there would be big growth in the things like social and mobile and video and now kind of this instantly global world that we live in. And we thought if we could put those two things together, that would be a big idea. It turns out it is, right? It's called Tastemade, uh, which is really a global food, travel, home and design network for digital platforms. It's interesting to think about this, though, Larry, because, you know, 2013, when you founded that, really was kind of a pivotal time, right? I mean, there really was an inflection point there from an older era of, of media. I just been reading Ben Thompson and, and uh, the guys over at Lightshed lately talking about what's going on with Clubhouse, for instance. And, and that feels like another inflection of a different kind but for you guys right about i'm just trying to think back then we were video finally made sense right that's really what the key was and we had social platforms that were now getting serious scale that also carried video right and that i just want to kind of place this in in a moment yeah no i think that's it's good to put it in its historical context so yeah i think it's early 2012 at the time, really, in terms of video, and we are a pure play video company, the only game in town in 2012 was YouTube. It was really the only place, I mean, there were other some sort of secondary services, but it was really the only major platform where, you know, consumers could go find original programming and content from, you know, publishers and creators and, you know, new kind of programmers and influencers. And so that was that was really what was there. And if you if you go to back just one tick further back, right? You know, this is after Google had acquired YouTube. Google, as you probably recall, like in 2010, 2011, invested about $200 million into the ecosystem. Right, it was 100 million a year for 100 companies, a million bucks each would seem like an immense amount of money back then. But ain't nothing now, right? That's right. It's small potatoes now. But at the time, yeah, I remember the actually one of my in my Series A investor slide. We showed what the the, the investment in digital content was in 2012, and it was about I think it was yeah it was about five four to five hundred million. And the two big buckets were like Hulu and and YouTube investing yeah. about a hundred million dollars, right? And we now know that's many 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 you know tens of billions at this point between all the all the major companies, right? So right. That's, that's radically changed. We caught sort of the tail end of that investment. And actually, our, when we stood up our channel on YouTube, uh, it was part we were we were part of that, you know, programming grant that they they gave. So that was a way for us to actually get started on YouTube. And kind of our thought was that all these other major platforms would quickly follow and embrace video in the same way that YouTube had. It didn't really happen, frankly, right? Go back now in our history, right? We've obviously built, you know, we have big audiences on platforms like YouTube, but we now have um, big audiences on platforms like Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and really Twitter, all these different platforms. But it wasn't really until 2015 that new platforms really started or big platforms started to focus on video. You know, so that's a few years removed from 2012. And it, it sort of started for us at the end of 14, early 15, where we started to natively create and upload video on Facebook, uh, which mm -hmm. kicked off like a pretty big craze at the time of audience growth there. And then the yeah, other- Yeah, it was good. Of, it was you guys, but it was you guys and there were some other guys kind of in your space and all of a sudden that became a thing, right? I mean, that's my recollection was Tastemade was there, 
tasty was it tasty i'm thinking yep, about tasty is a buzzfeed property yeah yeah there in, a whole in bunch, late yeah. 14 early 15 yeah there was a handful of companies that just started to treat facebook like what we always wanted it to be for us which was a global video distribution platform um, right. much in the same way that youtube was and so we we made that yeah we made that conscious effort started to program our channels on facebook like you would program any channel and so we were doing that and what we found a sweet spot there was obviously with you know recipe videos there's a lot of people on facebook right. that enjoyed that content um, but you also you you i think the other thing that was really interesting that you guys were doing was you were really optimizing pretty early on for facebook's definition of video versus youtube's definition right I mean, that yeah. meant things like you were using crawls across the bottom because people might not be having the audio on and, and getting something on the front because you got credit for they if they watched three seconds, you gave them a reason to watch for three seconds, right? Things like yeah, that. That kind of key point you're making is sort of fundamental to digital video, right? Is each of these platforms is different. You have to really be a native programmer for each of them, right? And so what you do on YouTube is not the same thing you would do on Facebook or Snapchat or each of these platforms is uniquely different. And so you have to really think, you know, you have to be pretty smart as a programmer to get on there early, understand what consumers like and don't like. One of the big innovations, which won't sound that interesting now, time was going to square videos instead of landscape because we realized that much of the consumption was happening on mobile. It was a square. It actually took up more real estate on the screen, which increased, you know, kind of people's propensity to watch it, which then right. drove viewership. And so it was little hacks and kind of things we learned along the way. And um, Instagram was taking off by then too, right? I mean, it was really starting to get a little bit of... That's right. Instagram of came, obviously. And then, but Snapchat was probably another one. And, and it, is, it even drives your point even finer because when Snapchat Discover launched, that was in 2015, we were one of the first 16 channels on Snapchat Discover, which now obviously is has Huge. hundreds of channels. Um, yeah. so they've done a great job with Discover. And that was a fundamentally different format as well. One, because of just how it worked, the sort of notion of tapping through the story. Um, and then the second was vertical video, which again, now seems like, oh yes, of course. But right. in 2015, it was novel. In fact, there was a pretty nice piece written about us in USA Today back in 2015 that sort of talked about our innovation, right? I mean, it seems kind of funny now. Oh, um, I know. But... It's so crazy to think about that. But that was like, I mean, in because here you are on the edge of Hollywood and uh, where you guys are located and people in Hollywood, their heads were exploding. It's like, what do you mean it's vertical? <laughs> We've been doing horizontal since they invented, since Edison was came along right it's got to be it's got to be horizontal I was like no because we're using phones now and, and it was a it was such a radical difference but it was also a recognition that this is a new platform again a new medium a new set of expectations and adapting to that i think is it's to your credit that you guys have been so smart about that hopping each time but it's also a reflection of how many people had a hard time doing that over the years too that for sure i mean it really was again seen as innovation um that the, the the thing i continue to come back to is native to mobile right vertical is totally native to mobile and then more importantly native to the platform so how it manifests on snapchat is totally different than even still today how it manifests on a, a platform like instagram and so 
Um, that's sort of fundamental to what we call, we're, we call ourselves a modern media company. And we think that is what the requirements are to be truly a modern media company, which is you have to really understand how these platforms work because that's frankly where most of the audience is. And then you have to optimize yourself for how to engage audiences there. And, you know, there's some obviously art and science to, to, to all of that. And that's what we've been sort of successfully navigating over these, these, these last years. So what, I mean, I guess the, the, the hot, latest one was TikTok two years ago, three years ago, something like that. I mean, people first started to say, hmm, this might be something. Uh, they did the Musical.ly deal, I think, three years ago now. And all of a sudden, they had a U.S. presence. They, I think they launched in uh, China with Douyin uh, like five years ago. But that really was the most recent one that really supercharges video, right? And that's a different creature in a lot of ways, really interesting ways, I think. But even from like Snapchat, it's, you know, and it's consumed a new generation of consumers, too. So uh, talk about adapting or figuring out, OK, we got to go there and we're going to do stuff there. And, and what what do you do there that you don't do elsewhere? Yeah, some of the benefits to us and just the scale we've, we've we've been operating. And obviously we sell in categories like food and travel and home design. All of these categories are evergreen, right? That was sort of fundamental to our business model when we started the company was how can we create a really valuable rich library you know everything we shoot in 4k so it's it works really well in all these social instances but we'll talk probably later about how it works on the big screen as well but you know TikTok's obviously a very hot platform still to this this moment right i mean there is a lot going on there and again you see start to see evolutions Obviously, in the beginning, very focused on dance videos and things like that. But you're now seeing every type of, you're seeing political content on that platform. You're seeing tons of food-related content, hacks, all sorts of different sports. Um, so I think it's been a great platform for us. We got, again, we, we tend to try to get on these platforms as early as possible because, you know, that's when you can, you kind of can figure it out. And so we've been successful there. So, you know, if you go to the Tastemade channel there, you can watch a lot of our contents that, that we create originally for that platform and, and stuff that we were able to repurpose, as well as probably one of our most popular show brands is a show called Tiny Kitchen. Tiny Kitchen, we make uh, miniature food to scale. And so we might take a dish like mushroom risotto and go through the painstaking details of how to make that in a tiny version. So um, like a single grain of rice? I mean, exactly. I mean, because like, you always think about the guy who like in, inscribes the Bible on a grain of rice. Right mm -hmm. now, you're ins you're inscribing a recipe on a grain of rice, or something. that's right. In the sushi episode on Tiny Kitchen, it's exactly that. It's a sliver of tuna, uh, basically, on a grain of rice. So, you know, that's something again where all this stuff sort of comes together. That was sort of a meme and a concept that was really blowing up on YouTube, you know, years ago, particularly out of YouTube's very global, right? We're very global. We started to see this with a lot of the Japanese creators. We brought that to YouTube and then have since brought this to all these different platforms and then brought it all over the world. That show itself has been viewed, you know, over a billion times. Wow. Um, it's been, you know, covered by many news outlets just because it's such a Kind of a unique oddity on some levels and people either love it because they find it soothing or they you know kind of don't because it's so frustrating like why would someone do this you know they it's, get very it's angry soothing at. but not filling right <laughs> that's right that's a good example of something that was working on other platforms 
that we then brought to TikTok and it's hugely popular. I mean, that channel alone has over a million followers on, on TikTok and tons of engagement. And again, people really love it. You mentioned the Japanese, you know, stuff coming out of the Japanese market that's really resonating and it's able now to travel globally. I'm curious about some of the regionality of the stuff that you create and how you're constructed because you do have your headquarters a mile from where I'm where I am. I could walk to your your headquarters, how you construct things that can work, A, from here across the globe, but B, do you have teams in other parts of the planet that are making stuff for Europe or Asia, for instance? Yeah, we absolutely do. Um, Tastemade is very global and have been really since day one. And I think it's one kind of driven by kind of our innate curiosity, right? When particularly food, I mean, you know, so all, some of the best foods that we would all eat, right, came from somewhere else, right? And the closer you pretty can much get all to of that, them, <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, the closer you can get to that authenticity, the better, right? Um, if you can experience Italian food from Italy, there's there's nothing better than that. Right, um, that's why so that's Stanley part, Tucci has a new show on CNN, right? He's I just watched it the other night. I thought it was it's great. fun. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's beautifully shot. It does what good, particularly lifestyle media does. Is it mm. makes you want to get there. Right. And right. we see, we find right. that with a lot of our content too. consumers watch it and then they want to act on it. And I thought that show did a great job. Uh, yeah. My wife, that. my wife used to live in Italy. So trust me, when we watched that, she's like, can we just get past this pandemic and just go there and eat? Yeah. So, you know, we were all ready for sure. To, to oh get, yeah. Get out of town. So, so but you got to, you, 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 you know, inherently it ties to a place. Uh, even if it's expats making it in, I don't know, uh, Thai town in, in in Los Angeles, it still goes back to northern Thailand or wherever. And you, you want to kind of connect with that that place and the travel and all that. But but then how do you, how are you creating that content authentically, I guess? Yeah, no, that's a great, great question. The the way we approached it was, again, sort of global from day one. Obviously, when I go back to that that history we we're talking about, YouTube was the first platform. Our view was we wanted YouTube to be kind of like our global Comcast, right? We're building a modern network. We want right. to distribute it all over the world. Our students of the media business, there were some great media businesses, particularly in the cable era, that built global companies. And that was really attractive to us. And so we really started to kind of get after it that way. And so for us, it started in a place like Brazil, where we just found some like-minded people who you know understood what we understood about this kind of next phase of, of media and also just had the passion that we had for these categories. And so today we have physical studios in Sao Paulo and in, in, in London and Tokyo, in addition to studios here in Los Angeles. And then we have virtual, essentially virtual studios, so they don't necessarily have a physical studio space, but we have a team in places like uh, Indonesia, India, in China, and in, in, in uh, excuse me, in Argentina. And mm -hmm. so those are teams that are creating original programming every single day under the Tastemade brand, but from those markets for those markets, right? And so that example of Brazil, all the ideas are coming from Brazilian tastemakers and creators all under the Tastemade channel and, and brand. And then we distribute it through these global platforms we've been talking about, where again, it's native to that country because all the content and ideas come from that country. So not doing a ton of created in the US and then try to export it, more taking kind of the Netflix approach, or I would say the Tastemade approach, because we've been doing it since 
2013, probably. They did. They did beat you to the punch, but it's it's fair to, in terms to claim of scale, it yourself. In terms of scale, yeah. I think I was probably creating this way maybe before, but I don't know that it is as it's as consequential. You know, our view was if you could create from these markets for these markets, you would get a higher quality content. Obviously, there's great efficiencies that you can achieve from a cost perspective when you're creating natively as well. And it just we, we've proven that this content will perform better because the consumers on the other end, right, the, the people who are watching. They can tell if it's some smarty, you know, American company trying to export, you know, right. how something should be made. It just doesn't come off authentic. It, it doesn't have the same fidelity. And so we've really demonstrated that if you do it this way, you will build really big brands in these markets. And just, just to give you an example on this, in Brazil, um, again, that's a market we've been in four years, you know, very successful on a number of different platforms. If you looked at like all things liked, on, on Facebook, right? So how many likes or follows something has. The, the number one most liked thing in the whole country of Brazil would be Neymar, right? The famous soccer player. Yeah. But but the, like the 13th most liked thing in the whole country of Brazil by Brazilians is Tastemade. Brazil's not a small country, right? Over 300 million people there. That's possible for the reasons that I articulated, right? We were there early. We smartly set it up the way we did and then really started to build a real fa a fan following, a real core audience of people who, you know, loved us there. Yeah, it's a little surprising that you have one in Argentina because it's basically a neighboring country of Brazil. So I think Uruguay would say that they're kind of in between. It, they're basically neighboring countries, yet they are wildly different cultures and obviously different languages. So with Brazil, yeah, that was really the driver. We were going to try to do Spanish. Spanish is complicated, right? Because right. So, so very many. regional itself, right? I mean, every, like the Argentinian Spanish is different than traditional Castilian or Mexico City, or, you know, like the, the, the DF in Mexico has a wildly different way of That's speaking. Right. So that one is probably, it, it's, it's just harder for that reason. We yeah. try to do it as neutrally as possible from Argentina and have been pretty successful. Um, you know, we even have strong followings in Mexico, as an example, from what we're doing out of the Argentine studio. But it has led us to things like starting to do more native creation in Mexico, because we know sure. that that audience is going to appreciate it more, which is kind of the thematic that I was just mentioning. I mean, even India has got to be a challenge. I mean, I'm always fascinated by India. It has two national official languages, Hindi and English, and then I think 23 regional official languages. So creating something that's authentic <laughs> in a country that big with 1.2 billion users or residents and, and all the rest has got to be a major challenge. I mean, is it where are you in Mumbai or Bangalore or where are they? Yeah, we've got a, a team there. And what we're doing there today is starting with English, uh, obviously for the reasons that you mentioned, right? It would be impossible, not impossible, but it, it's very complicated to operate there. But um, yeah, we just started out there creating, uh, we've got a good uh, partner there that we, we work with and creating original programming that's primarily right now for Snapchat. And, and we're doing some great stuff there for Pinterest as well. So on that platform. Mm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, Pinterest doesn't need to worry so much about the language. So that's one of the nice things about it, right? I, I find that fascinating. I mean, obviously, all of the big media and tech companies are trying to get a piece of the Indian market, except TikTok, which got banned after 
and lost 100 million users or something, some crazy number uh, when that political thing happened. So that's that's obviously should be a really big, a really big opportunity for you guys. Now, we started to talk about a little bit about beyond the social media platforms. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that because, for instance, I've done some interviews. Uh, I, I interviewed a guy last summer who's with a big children's programming service out of England and uh, called Wild Brain. And those guys, you know, we're seeing huge pandemic viewership on YouTube of their longer broadcast, quality broadcast length programming. Families would sit down around the TV on the connected TV and watch YouTube uh, at night together. And that's, that's like right out of 1968, right? <laughs> Other than the, you know, who's sending it down the pipe. But it's fascinating that they're watching that, that kind of stuff. And they'll even watch longer advertising which is fascinating to me. So I'm curious what you're seeing with your content and how that may have evolved on some of the connected TVs and, and, and more traditional platforms. Yeah, so, you know, kind of our view was, again, create once, shoot once, but then use many, right? That's sort of the power of how we thought about social and that extends to the, the television. And part of why that's been possible again is, you know, I think we've been shooting for 4K for a long time. In fact, when we originally started shooting in 4K, it was so, that it was easier to edit for vertical, you know, which is really kind of what drove right. us. Because you, could, you would reframe it, right? That's yeah. right. We could just go in and cut out the piece we wanted more easily because the, the image size was so much bigger. But yeah, we've been creating high quality programming, again, in 4K for years now. And so in 2018, it created the opportunity for us to launch a 24-7 linear streaming network. So it's, it's like a cable network, but it's all streaming. It's all distributed over IP through a whole set of different partners, which I can I can kind of walk through and explain how we work with them. But hundreds of hours of original television length programming each uh, year, we're programming for this new world, which is OTT and connected TV. Um, and we're seeing great engagement there on your, your point about just the consumption. Yeah, we saw, you know, 100% increase in consumption. I think a lot of the OTT type companies have seen that in 2020. This is clearly 2020 was sort of a, a kind of an important year, both in terms of the vast, you know, kind of the increase in consumption that a lot of the big OTT platforms saw, you know, Roku is an example is one of those. And then probably just as important, or maybe more importantly, that shift, I think, in the mindset of the big advertisers, right? where they were sort right. of locked into this new front or upfront, and and now with digital, they can start to apply all the same digital strategies and tactics that they've been doing with addressable. And you know, I think they're somewhat liberated by that. And it also just makes more sense, obviously. But those dollars, and I think this is kind of an important point, right? Is yeah. those TV dollars really hung in there? The traditional TV dollars, right? It wasn't really declining that materially. But I do think 2020 is kind of a watershed moment. And I think you're seeing that in both audience engagement in a platform like Roku or, you know, sort of the, seeing the shift in ad spend. And so we've, we've deeply benefited from that, right? So again, we always wanted to be on all platforms. That ecosystem we sort of see breaks down in kind of three ways for us, at least. There's sort of SVOD, right? Where, you know, Tastemade was one of the, the channels that launched when Apple TV channels launched. So that was, those are the add-on channels you can add on to your Apple TV Plus subscription. We're on platforms like Prime and Hulu as well. There's sort of the, the bundles, the, the pay bundles, both yeah. the old version and the new version, so or the traditional version. So if you're a you know a Comcast subscriber, you can watch Tastemade 
If you're a direct TV subscriber, you can, you know, tune the channel to the Tastemade channel. Speaking of which, I just, I, Larry, I just noticed that uh, TPG just bought direct TV from AT&T. So that'll be interesting to see what they do with it, right? That's right. I think they're going to harvest for cash flow as it would be. Oh, (laughs) TPG wouldn't do that. (laughs) That'd be so unlike them. That's right. But, so, so you've got uh, DirecTV, you've got Comcast. Yeah, we're, the biggest we're on YouTube, TV, Philo, Fubo, pretty much any of those services that bundling, we're on those. And then I think what's caught some people by surprise is the free AVOD service, either called AVOD or FAST, free right. ad-supported streaming television. Those really have taken off during the pandemic, You know, whether that's a Tubi or a Roku or Samsung is one that probably is surprising people. Uh, IMDb TV, which is Amazon's product, Peacock. We're on all those services as well. And uh, we've just seen massive growth over there. And I think that's really because we're seeing more people cut the cord, obviously. They're looking for you know ways to augment their big subscription services, whether that's you know an HBO Max or a, a Netflix or a Prime. And they're looking for more content and looking for it potentially on an ad-supported basis. We've seen that part of the, what I just described really take off. And uh, we're starting to roll that out around the world. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I was just talking with a friend who works over at Tubi, and, and you know they're still figuring out which way is up uh, as part of Fox. And it'll be fascinating to see what Fox does. And I was listening yesterday to the very long Paramount Plus, et cetera, presentation where they also got into what they're doing with Pluto, right, at uh, Viacom CBS. And in both cases, clearly, they see the opportunity with FAST as a, as a big one. You know, is there a concern about getting lost a little bit among hundreds of channels? Or how do you all program to stick out in that kind of world? Yeah, I think it's each of the platforms is a little bit different. Um, but if we, if we focus on the FAST ones, you know, I think the origins of what was onboarded was, you know, it started as stuff that otherwise maybe would have been short form, right? Stuff on YouTube and some channels sort of came in and kind of they just turned them into linear channels. That was sort of the early version of that. And then we saw the the lots of libraries coming over, right? Content that are, that's been created over the over decades on right. traditional television. And, and so that's sort of been phase two. There aren't, strangely, there aren't a lot of pure play companies that are creating new original programming specifically for these channels frankly, like we are. There's some that maybe were like cable networks that kind of are losing distribution. So they're sort of migrating down, if you will, to some of these platforms. But as like pure upstarts, people heavily focused on how do I create, you know, original programming native to these new services and this new connected TV opportunity. Just frankly, there aren't a lot. Is, the, is this is this a little bit like what you guys were seeing as an opportunity in, in 2013? With, I think so, uh, yeah. In fact, we, we hoped that this moment would have come sooner, right? <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> to, you know, how we perceived what YouTube was building. You know, we're very proud that we're on YouTube TV. In fact, YouTube TV was the first service we launched our streaming network on. You can imagine how that whole world could come together someday. But, you know, we would have thought that the TV opportunity would just would have emerged much earlier, and it didn't. Sure. But we're thrilled that it's here now because we see really deep engagement, you know, just longer session times, watch times. And then on most of these platforms, we, you know, we kind of share in the inventory. We can monetize that inventory. And, you know, over the years, we've become very good working with the world's best brands. And guess what? They want to work with us on this new streaming TV opportunity now as well. And so we're monetizing that channel very effectively. 
which allows us then to go back and reinvest in content. And like I said, the channel's launched in the US, but it's also now in Canada, Australia. We launched with some of the partners we've been talking about in Brazil. We've launched in 18 countries in Spanish language. It's launched in the UK on platforms like Sky. Mm -hmm. And so we're rolling it out around the world. And by the way, in those markets, again, in Brazil, we were able to launch with a whole slate of original Brazilian content. And when we launched on those platforms, we were like the only one, right? Because there aren't that many companies that have been focused in creating and owning your own content, being able to exploit it across all platforms, natively to the, the, the country. And so we like all the foundational work we've been doing over the years around the world. It's kind of coming to focus now with the launch mm. of some of these channels. It's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, I look forward to tracking down the feijoada uh, recipe from your Brazilian sources there. But, uh, there's some Brazilian, there used to be some Brazilian restaurants along Venice Boulevard in Culver City That's right. that uh, made some pretty, pretty great. They, they, like, they like their roast meat, but <laughs> they, they also like that. All. But they also like the, the, the wonderful stew they make. Fascinating stuff. And then on the tradition, I mean, you've got that linear channel that is on sort of traditional basis. So you've got that. What's your assessment of the opportunity as we see cords getting cut and some shifts going on? I keep hearing, look, there's still an opportunity over here. And certainly that was the case Viacom was making and the discovery made, case discovery executives made at their earnings call on Monday. You know, look, uh, we're going to try and take care of our legacy business. I mean, they kind of have to, but that there's still a business there. And if you take good care of those providers, there's, they'll take care of you as long as they can and vice versa. I mean, do you see that as still being strongly viable opportunity for you guys? Yeah, for us, uh, when we are included in the traditional bundles, we are done so uh, over IP, meaning mm -hmm. we are, the way we're doing it is, a, is kind of technically alternative to the traditional. So I wouldn't right. call us like pure traditional. And as you know, with pure traditional, some of the advertising opportunities and those types of things are the way they work is different. And right. so when we're on uh, Xfinity or even when we're on DirecTV, we're still delivering our stream over IP, which creates the opportunity for us to, or you know, YouTube TV as an example, right? Creates the opportunity for us to, in a very modern way, sell that advertising. And so I think that's kind of a key, key difference. The strategy we kind of laid out was we didn't know exactly how it would play out, right? So that's that was sort of the point of the three buckets, right? We don't right, know right. exactly, but I know that I've got all my bases covered, right? If it, if it turns out that nobody wants to watch content with an ad, then well, guess what? We're, we're aligned with all the big SBOD opportunities, whether it's us direct or through our partners. If the bundle morphs and changes over time, like I don't, I mean, the traditional bundle is in decline. There's no now. There used to be debate about that. There's no longer debate about that. Right. Um, and we're seeing some of the skinny bundles emerge. And I think those over time will probably, particularly, you know, I think the biggest companies are likely to work to win. And they have other subscription things. And you can imagine how that could start to bundle in different ways. At least I can. And so, yeah, it's true. well, Apple's certainly doing it with their Apple One bundle, right? I mean, they they've taken all their internal services, but then they're layering that on with the the deal they did with Viacom for the two the two services they have. And certainly, those executives talked a lot about bundling BET Plus and and new bundle opportunities with a the lower tier version of, of Paramount Plus. I think this we're going to see a bunch of bundling. I mean, that's yeah, that's you, the future. YouTube the rebundling. Itself, 
right? It's been amazing. I mean, YouTube premium has tens of millions of subscribers, right? Not, not a lot of people talk about that. Um, so you could imagine how maybe they could start to bring, you know, start to bring some of this together. I don't know that they're going to do that, but that's just a person who thinks about this, I can imagine. And then the last piece is the free side. I think there's lots of really good data that consumers want that, right? I, I think Pluto's a very, been very successful. I think Tubi's been very successful. Amazon is focused on that, you know? That's a pretty serious company that's having a lot of success with advertising. TV advertising in, in the US is $60 billion that is about to shift. Mm. You know, I think we've all been saying it for, I've been saying it for almost nine years. I was wrong. <laughs> Um, but I think I think it's now probably the case, and I think everyone admits that to themselves. And yeah. so Amazon, I think, is very well positioned with you know IMDb TV, which TasteMade is a channel on. Obviously, they've got the Fire platform. I think you're going to see a lot happen there. And so that one makes real sense to me as it complements what we're seeing on just the growth of Spot, right? Disney Plus has been amazing. Netflix globally has been amazing. And so it just kind of makes sense to me that there would be a free complement to those and that the free complement would be ad supported. And frankly, that's where we're seeing really dynamic growth. Well, we're on platforms like Roku and Pluto and Samsung, as I mentioned, is don't doesn't get as much airtime, but they're a real player. I mean, they have tens of millions of devices that are rolled out around the world that are connected to the internet. And they have now good UI where people can discover channels. We were pretty blown away by what we saw when we launched with them in Brazil. There's a real audience there. And yeah, so they've got some real, they've got a, they've got a good market share there. Uh, Vizio, 15 million subs, I think. Right. Uh, yeah, we're partners with them as well. I mean, that's a nice, and people don't think about Vizio as much, but then they've got a very sophisticated data subsidiary uh, that they have and i mean and not to lose track of it the key part there is advertisers are figuring out how to take advantage of stuff what what are you all doing special and different in these spaces what are you able to do that is different from more traditional ad selling yeah i think we obviously have a massive audience right 300 million people watch taste meet each month so when i go talk to one of these new distributors i can talk about that audience and how a, I'm recognizable, right? If you put my channel mm -hmm. on the dial, people know Tastemade, right? So that's certainly one thing that we bring to the table, which I think is compelling for some of these distributors. Two, we're taking it seriously. Like we are creating, you know, really investing in high quality content native to these platforms. And what's native about these platforms is the people watching aren't 50 plus. That is yeah. who's watching traditional TV, right? Right. So, you know, and it's older than that for like some of these cable channels like Fox News, it's like 68 or 70 is the, right. the average I'm not age. programming to those people. I am programming right. to younger consumers. I'm world-class at doing it on Snapchat and Facebook and you, all these different platforms. So we know this audience. And so we're creating, you know, hopefully compelling content that works for that audience. What works is you see a lot more diversity and talents, you right? You see people that look like the people you're trying to reach. Like not everybody's 50 years old, you know, now all our chefs are 50 plus, they're younger people. And so I think that's been really critical. And then we've been successful on the programming side. So one of the shows that we create, and again, we don't think about it as one platform. We think about it as all the platforms. We have a show called Struggle Meals. The host of that show's name's Frankie. You know, that started off as a Facebook show. We then moved it to a Snap show. We then brought it to Instagram and YouTube. It's on all those platforms. But when we launched our streaming network, it was sort of one of the marquee shows that we did. 
uh, Frankie this year was nominated for an Emmy for Struggle Meals, right? So huh? one of the things that we're doing is we're making content that's competing with, in this case, the Food Network. All the other nominees were people like Rachel Ray and people like that, people who are on the Food Network. So we're creating compelling content that's high quality, that's obviously worked on social, but starting to demonstrate it can hang with the best of the best. Another is a show we have that we did with Roy Choi called Broken Bread. That was done as a co-production with KCT, our local PBS affiliate here in LA. Great show, talk, you know, covering topics of social justice and inequality, actually, um, you know, before maybe even some of the things that we saw in 2020. So very on point with what's happening in the world with a great voice. Roy Choi is super credible and authentic. Yeah, I've heard him speak before. I've got his book and stuff and certainly have eaten in his restaurants. Yeah, he's a funny ass dude and he's 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 a he's a butt kicker, no doubt about it. So he he'd great. That touches again on those things that Jonathan Gold used to write about, about how food is community, is culture, and leads us to lots of places and better understanding and connection that we might not be able to do in little places like, oh, I don't know, politics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's right. Yeah, we that's we we covered this full spectrum with that show. Obviously, that notion of broken bread is exactly what you were describing, right? Sitting down with someone, breaking bread. People have from comes from from different places that we might you know achieve a better understanding, and that's that's kind of what we do. That that show did really well. Uh, won a, a local Emmy, um, and then also was a James Beard. Uh, Roy won the James Beard Award for that. So very proud of that work. And so that's part of what we do is programming honestly, natively for a different audience, not people who are 50 plus, but are younger people, and then doing it authentically um, at a very high quality and, and starting to create some real breakthrough programming. I think at the end of the day, this is the media business, right? We have to be able to do that. And so we are doing it. And that's our conversation with Larry Fitzgibbon, the CEO and co-founder of Taste Made, the very interesting media company based in Santa Monica, California, but with uh, global reach and ambitions. That is doing a lot of interesting stuff, as you got to hear just now. If you like our show, I'd really appreciate it if you would uh, like, share, review, and rate the program. It helps the algorithms out there figure out that it's uh, not so bad to listen in, and that helps me a little bit. Uh, if you really like the show, uh, the site that um, both syndicates and hosts my podcast, Anchor.fm, which is part of Spotify these days, has a Patreon-style way to support the program and chip in a few bucks to help keep this magic media machine rolling along. And that would be, of course, uh, greatly appreciated, though it's a difficult time for many folks, and I certainly understand. More generally, I uh, love to hear from you guys. Um, Anchor.fm also makes it very easy for you to leave even an audio message. You can reach me separately if you'd like on Twitter at David Bloom and on LinkedIn at David L. Bloom. So uh, you can reach me and connect and tell me a little bit about what you think about what Tastemate's doing, what the opportunities are, particularly interested in what's happening both in the fast or AVOD video streaming service uh, area and some of the newer platforms in social media that are becoming such uh, big sources of video entertainment of many kinds. I also think people should not sleep on what Google is doing with connected TVs. I think it's going to be really a big deal in the coming months and years, uh, particularly not just in the United States, but uh, overseas where they have a, a much larger footprint than they do here. 
all that said, please take care of yourselves. There is reason for hope. This is spring of a couple of kinds, I think, as we see some easing of some of the challenges with the pandemic and hopefully not too many rash early opening decisions to undercut some of that. I hope you're staying safe, being smart, keeping sane. Uh, we've lost too many people from both the, the disease directly and from some of the side effects indirectly. And I love all my listeners and want you all to stay in one piece. And with that, I will wrap this up. This is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom and Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone. Thank you.